maybe fourth space could someday open up a moment where people can talk about their digital self-display practices, because I think that display is a 21st century way of being that we have to get in touch with. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Fourth Space Podcast. We'd like to begin by acknowledging that Fourth Space and Concordia University are located on unceded Indigenous lands. The Cuyuncahaga Nation is recognized as custodians of the lands and waters on which we gather. And Chichague, Montreal, is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. We respect the continued connections with the past, the present, and the future in our ongoing relationships with Indigenous and other peoples within the Montreal community. In today's episode, we sit down with Dr. Maria Carolina Combray. She's an associate professor uh, in the Department of Education. And in this episode, she's in conversation with Prem Suryakumar, a knowledge broker with the Office of Research. Uh, and leading up to that, I had a chance to talk to Prem a little bit about his practice, how he approaches working with researchers. My name is Prem Suryakumar. Um, I'm a knowledge broker at Concordia University. Thanks for coming in and... Uh, we're uh, really happy to have you uh, here for this interview with, with Carolina. But before we get to that, it would be great to know a little bit more about your process and kind of how you go into uh, a conversation with, with a researcher. During the interviews, I'm really thinking about what's the narrative in the sense that everyone has a story. And I think even research process uh, has a story and uh, has an origin, has a middle and end. Uh, and it's a quest, you know, and I really want to tell the story of these researchers quest um, and what they're searching for and what motivated them. And in talking to them, when I'm also thinking about how can I make their quest better? Who can I connect them to? How can I you know, impact the society around them by knowing that they're working on this? But my job is to be able to make sure that other people know what they're working on. Uh, so are all the kind of the general thoughts that are going through my head as I'm um, interviewing them. And then also thinking about uh, as an outsider, since I'm not an academic, I work in academia. I try to think about questions that a non-academic would ask. Did you know about Carolina's work before this or was this your first time? sitting down with her. I did not know of her work, but um, in speaking to her, it's where you discover these gems. You realize, wow, you're working on something so relevant to everybody. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's go to the interview. Thanks, Prem. My name is Maria Carolina Cambre. I'm an artist scholar from Argentina, originally Buenos Aires, and I've been at Concordia since the end of 2015, I started teaching in 2016. And my research, I'm in the Department of Education. I have a doctoral degree in educational policy studies, but my actual dissertation was a work of visual sociology. So I've always been uncomfortable in any discipline, even though both sociology and education are incredibly interdisciplinary. So even those uh, already sort of porous, fluid kinds of disciplines aren't open enough. I like to think um, 
in post-disciplinary ways, sort of allowing thinking not to be governed by the conventions, let's say, of thinking that are embodied in, in a discipline. So it's a kind of undisciplined research I do. Okay, great. Um, I was just going to try this because I loved all the different terms that showed up as I was kind of reading about you. And I was hoping to do a bit of a quick fire in trying to get breaking down some of these disciplines or these terms. And then I would love to continue this conversation. So right off the bat, visual sociology. Can, from your experience and your work, can you define it or explain it to me? Visual sociology is sociology that attends to looking, seeing, being seen, and the visuality, as well as the visualicity of the world. So by the visuality, what comes into view, and the visualicity is basically the conditions that make something come into view. And what visual sociology foregrounds is the researchers acts of looking and how they impact the research. Uh, what the researcher attends to, just simply the fact that I'm looking at something and I consider it data, um, has a lot to do with my own, the socialization of my own eye. So, and, and the time and space and uh, sort of geography even emotional geography that I might be in, in that moment, I could look at the same thing again and see completely different sets of data. So the data are not sort of magically emerging in visual sociology. It's more about looking at the traction of not just what the social and cultural work of, of the visual is, images, but beyond images to performance, to the built environment um, and beyond, um, to, for example, what the researchers are doing. So for example, a project in visual sociology right now is not mine, but someone's that I like, is drone seeing. So what does the fact that um, a lot of our photography or news think about the way they show crowds now at protests are done through drone photography. So the eye is displaced in a way that it hasn't been historically. So what does that do for the ways we interpret or experience images and the visual world? And then what does that do for us socially, right? So that's, that's where visual sociology kind of fits in. But I'm curious how you got to the visual sociology, because I know that it wasn't, you got there, it was a, quite a path that you took. Yeah, um, I don't want to ramble, uh, but all I do is ramble. So that's the thing. I just kind of wander till I get somewhere. It's a nomadic sort of thing. I started out in, in literature, English literature, literary theory. I shifted towards social sciences, um, education, teaching, pedagogy. Um, and then sort of in my active activist life, and because I was also part of a collage network, working on projects, exhibitions, it all kind of merged. And I realized that the way I research and the way I come to gain insights about things is really first through not only viewing, but creating visual work. 
So for example, when I did the book on the image of Che Guevara, I, that was the dissertation book, but I came to that by creating montages. So the montages, you know, three to four minute montages were ways of exploring theoretical questions, empirical questions. They didn't appear in my dissertation. They don't appear in my research, but they're my thinking process. So coming to visual sociology, I, I realized that, uh, you know, I wanted to do something that mattered. And I thought it mattered to think about the world and our worlding sort of creation of worlds through uh, the visual. Um, just kind of jumping to, because part of what you're also recognized is the sociology of education. The work, I would love a quick definition as how you would describe that, that discipline. Sociology of education is considered a subfield of sociology. Uh, but it crosses into, of course, education. And what it looks at is all the different aspects, social aspects that impact education. So it looks at socioeconomic status. It looks at urban versus rural. It looks at um, identity, race, uh, class, ability. So uh, for example, a sociology of education would problematize the fact that, for example, if there's a fire drill at a school, or if there's a fire at a school, the instructions are for all able-bodied students to leave first and to leave chair users and people with disabilities for last. Um, so what are the priorities and what is the sort of society that creates that way of thinking? because a child's first instinct is to go help the child that can't get out and push them out, right? And they have to be trained to leave them behind. This is a part of the social and cultural learning that happens in schools that's not part of a curriculum. And so sociology of education looks at that, looks at how, for example, arranging desks in rows separating people or aligning them in certain ways does something to them, right? The way the day is structured, the way people have to line up, um, all those kinds of bodily norms uh, that children are pressed into are part of the socialization that happens through schooling. And that's what sociology of ed looks like. Great, thank you. So now I'm curious if we were to go back to that concept of you're wandering and the interdisciplinary or post-discipline, how do these things come together in terms of your current work? And I know you're looking at digital representation and if you could talk a little bit about that. Okay, deep dive into the current project, which is the Filtered Face, a sociology of selfies. I'm working with Christine Laverance from the University of Western Ontario, co-authoring the book. Uh, we ran 25 focus groups in two provinces and four cities with uh, people aged 18 to 29 of a variety of races, abilities, and uh, gender identities. And we have been working through the transcripts to learn about what is it that has changed in terms of the uh, digital self-display of a person. Everyone seems to implicitly agree on what the rules are 
for not only for how to take a selfie, but also for how to share it when and where. You know, there are lots of top 10 ways to make your selfie look good online, but there are much more nuanced rules. Uh, for example, around hashtagging, people that add and then delete hashtags. All these kinds of things are being watched by people who post and people who um, inhabit Instagram to, to a large extent, because that's the main platform that we're looking at. So this brings together um, the way people learn from each other. So it's pedagogical. So there's your sociology of education angle. It brings together a, so, a visual sociology because we're talking about iconographic conventions that are created and congeal sort of on the fly, right? Now it's, it's not well seen, for example, if you post a selfie more than once a week. And so there are rules, but these are implicit rules. And so that also overlaps with sociology of information because somehow information is getting around about these kinds of social norms online. And, and, and there's a mass, you know, a critical mass of people that accept them and apply them. So there's another aspect here, which is the policing. Um, platforms are always policing people, but people are policing people all the time as well. So there is a great deal of shaming um, and people screenshot photos of other people, share them amongst their friends, dissect them. Um, and this comes to a theory that I'm working on with my colleague at Western, King's College at Western University. We're writing the book together. We've been doing this project together and we've come up with the concept of the digital forensic gaze, which is a way of looking that emerges in digitality. It's, it's sort of prefaced by police looking and police photographing of crime scenes and the publication of these crime scene photographs that, that were trying at the time, you know, at the beginning of photography to influence an audience. And but what, what's now happening is that, you know, we think about scrolling as a glance, but scrolling is not a glance. Scrolling is a long set of connected glances, sometimes looking for irregularities, but generally uh, motivated by boredom. Um, and they trigger or they're triggered by or they lock into, let's say, the flow of a feed. So because scrolling has a lot to do with a feed, there is a lot of emphasis on a feed and the coherence of a feed. But people stop and there's a different kind of looking. Now we think that there's attention, uh, there's a deficit of attention. People are attention exhausted. But the way people look at selfies is incredibly intense. And what they're looking for um, often, some of our participants use the, the word watermark they're looking for watermarking. And what they mean by this, so, you know, as we do this research, we're learning lots of new words that people are using. So the wa watermarking is, say for example, in the background here, one of the lines of the wall was like bent towards me. Someone would read that as a sign that the photo was edited, that I've thinned my figure, right? And that's what they call a watermark. So that calls for intense scrutiny 
they're looking for any pore smoothing, lip plumping, eyebrow raising, background editing, uh, kinds of editing. And this goes for both uh, male bodies and female bodies, muscle pumping, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's really interesting. In one of the focus groups, what we did was show people six selfies of different people in different places doing different things and ask them to talk about them. And so many people noticed all kinds of things that we would never have identified. So there was one selfie of someone in a mirror and, the, and the, it was a mirror selfie post shower because it was steamed, but immediately people noticed, yeah, they rubbed off the steam from the mirror in this place and in this place to show the face and the abs, but not the phone. And people spotted that right away, which parts of the mirror had been cleared for the image. I mean, it's, it's a very precise, intense kind of analysis that's going on. And I don't think we give youth, I guess, 20 year olds enough credit for the crafting of the images and also the analysis of the images. So when we talk about an image focused society, it's, it's incredibly, intense. I don't know. What, what, do you, what, what would be your ideal outcome from this process? I don't know what this means for your future, but I know that, that the people we interviewed are aware of the contradictions and the difficulties, and they're aware that they're the pressure from platforms to behave in certain ways. They even have an expression for it. They call it the forced positive. Uh, you gotta be happy. You gotta say good things. If, you, if you're not pumping someone up, you just shouldn't say anything. So you really gotta swallow a lot of things that you might wanna express that a friend who cares about a friend might express that might be unpleasant, but you can't, you can't. So. You know, and that's why you have the Finsta and the Rinsta, right? So you have to create your fake Instagram, which is where you put your real stuff. Uh, and your real Instagram is where you put your fake stuff. So this kind of skiz, it's a schizo situation, right? Um, which has led us to a theory worked on by Deleuze and Guattari and Guattari's work on um, schizoanalytic cartographies. And we're using a schizoanalytic frame in part, because there's so much ambiguity and anxiety uh, created by these contradictions that are really affecting people. So I guess what I, I would see in the future, what I would, where I would see this going is developing ways of teaching polymedia literacies, um, making it explicit how um, different mediated expressions um, come to impact a person and come to impact relationships. Um, and, and so that people get a language around uh, critiquing and assessing and don't just feel bad about it. Uh, if you could just quickly describe polymedia literacies. People came up with polymedia literacies to indicate that we're not in a multimedia environment. A multimedia would be a, a way of understanding media as separate, but together. So you have 
you know, I don't know, you have collage and then you have multimedia collage, which incorporates both photographs and painting and this and that, but you can still tell them apart. Uh, in a polymedia environment, it's a more seamless uh, blending of a variety of media. So you have people taking selfies inside video games, for example, um, and, and that's inside a platform, which is in something else, which is not which is sometimes mobile on your phone or sometimes it's static in your room in a large desktop computer. So the polymedia environment means that there are multiple forms of mediation acting on you simultaneously that you can't necessarily draw a clear line between. I mean, I'm generally a contrarian, so I'll research things because um, I'm pushing back on sort of mainstream ideas or stuff like that. Yeah, and I would love to continue speaking to you and connecting the work you're doing with you know, visual culture and also the way we represent knowledge and et cetera. Um, I just want to say, you know, sociology of information, um, visual sociology, sociology of education, they all share the, the prism, the sociological prism and lens um, that relies on making the familiar strange. And once selfies are no longer a huge fad, like many people are saying, oh, the selfie moment is over, but they fade into the everyday. And that's when we want to say, why this, why here, why now? And in asking those kinds of questions, what, what this project has been able to do, at least for us, and I hope for others, is show that this is not frivolous. This is not a frivolous activity. This is very, very important to very many people and impacts them deeply. That would be part of it. And maybe fourth space could, you know, someday open up a moment where people can talk about their digital self-display practices, because I think that display is a 21st century way of being that we have to get in touch with. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fourth Space Podcast. Please stay tuned for new episodes coming soon. Uh, you can follow us on YouTube, SoundCloud, Instagram, and Facebook at CU Fourth Space. The Fourth Space Podcast is hosted by me, Douglas Moffat, editing by Chloe Lalonde, and produced by Anna Vlakovec, Douglas Moffat, and Prem Siakamar. Our theme music is courtesy of Supercontinent. And special thanks to Maria Carolina Combray. Thanks, and see you soon.